Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Iruk the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfin. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nachvetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestin Echo. Vientolum again omgrev or corn rachtum. Yatakshatorin Graven or Corson, Elistuhalagus Gimina Fracht, Gorokligs or Dukashin Echor. Only Venown, Thordorakshin. Shachten. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Hello and you're welcome to the Big Tech Show podcast with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunny Independent. And this week we're talking about unions in tech because you may have seen that in the U.S., a group of workers in Google have dared to form their own union. Now, uh, this comes as a surprise to a lot of people, a union in a high-tech company. I mean, weren't those two things supposed to be uh, inimical, in- inimicable? Inimical, I think is the right word. Um, I mean, aren't tech firms supposed to be these enlightened, high-paying workplaces where there isn't any need uh, for unions? Um, well, we're going to talk about that uh, today uh, with Owen Reedy, the Assistant General Secretary of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Owen, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Adrian. Now, in Ireland, unions are very rare at scale in big tech companies here, but they're not an unknown. I mean, Apple has a, a few workers, probably mainly from its legacy work in making iMacs all those years ago. Actually, they still make iMacs down in Cork. Um, companies like HP, Ericsson, IBM historically have had union membership. Not so much Google, Facebook, the big web companies, which are the real growth engines in cities like uh, Dublin at the moment. Now, a lot of people would have different impressions of the mixing of unions and tech companies. From your perspective, come from a union background, I mean, would it be fair to ask you whether union, is it that unions don't really care about organising in tech companies here? I think we I think we do care, Adrian. I think in many ways, the pandemic has given us all an opportunity to reflect on the world of work, the future of work. Um, and I think a lot of workers right across the economy are looking at, at their futures and trying to make sure that work satisfies and pays and all goes with that. Um, and I think it's fair to say unions like the Financial Services Union have uh, broached into the gaming industry, which is a which is an industry that that is quite significant in Ireland. Um, but there's a challenge for us. But some of the challenges are are, are macro issues. They're they're legislative uh, issues. The, the framework in which we operate in is very restrictive in Ireland, unlike mm. most of uh, Western Europe. So you know, policymakers uh, for a long number of years have supported the system in Ireland being a voluntary system, and we've argued who's it really voluntary for. It's really voluntary for the employers. We, 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 um, we'll, we'll come into that now in a minute because it's actually a really interesting point I, I want to ask you about. But the, just looking at it from uh, I, from a higher uh, macro view, I've asked yeah. about this and written about this over many years, and I've spoken to a lot of TDs about it. I've spoken to tech companies, spoken to union organizers as well. And it has always appeared to me when asking these questions that there has been a kind of a soft consensus that in the grand scale of things, because 
tech companies like Google and Facebook tend to pay a little bit better, tend to have good conditions at work in terms of perks and gyms and free food and even things like maternity and paternity leave, that because all those things are kind of above the average and and although they have their issues, definitely as, as companies, they don't have some of the you're going to lose your job and your life is going to be shattered for the next five years type of problems. Um, they've always it always seems to have been kind of down the pecking order in terms of of everybody, of politicians, maybe union organizers, the companies themselves, of course, which are usually delighted not to have union uh, membership, yeah. uh, you know, f- for their own reasons. I mean, is that is that a fair sort of impression that I've gotten over the years? Yeah, it is. Industrial policy changed in in Ireland in the 1980s. Before that, the IDA and governments would have encouraged uh, multinational companies to work with trade unions to facilitate their staff being members of unions. That all changed in the 1980s, um, where the government took a neutral, but we would suggest, based on the fact that the policy is absent on collective bargaining, a more hostile view. Um, And I think as well, you know, there are many of these high-tech companies that are very good employers, non-union companies, but good employers. Um, but I think a lot of people are trying to broaden out what is good and decent work. The Carnegie Trust in the UK have done a lot of work on this, and they look at a range of things beyond pay in terms of conditions of employment. And one of the things which I think is going to be really important to the future is the whole issue of control. You know, professional workers having a level of control, co-design over their work. Mm. You know, being assured that they can progress, being assured that they can fulfill their skills and that they that their work is satisfying. Mm. And crucially, that the culture when it comes to things like mental health, work-life balance is there. And I actually think that debate, and I think the pandemic has, has, has brought that debate more center stage, more into the mainstream, will to some degree change this. Because the tradition would be, you know, you join a union if you have a grievance whether it's a collective grievance or an individual grievance. You Mm. don't usually join it because of some ethical issue or some political issue. It's because you have a a grievance and you want it addressed and you see a union as a vehicle to do that. I mean, in some cases, it can be a uh, future-proofing thing. Like, uh, for example, in the media, uh, journalists. I mean, I'm a member of a union, the the NUJ. And the main reason, not the only reason, but the main reason is because when I came into journalism in the late 90s, that was kind of the thing you did. You know, you joined the union. It's now, part of the culture. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, I still pay my my uh, union dues. I know there are debates that will always go on among colleagues. Is it worth it? Is it not worth it? For me, it's kind of a, it's sort of part of the industry, therefore. Um, uh, but, but I can see a lot of younger colleagues now coming in to the industry and other industries. And the question they're asking is, well, what exactly does the union do for me now you know bringing that over into tech uh, into tech industries that really is an interesting question because okay let's say for example that the pay is generally good the, the perks are fairly good let's say also that if you le- lose your job in facebook one day the chances are that you've got two or three other jobs maybe even better paid waiting for you somewhere else at linkedin or google or twitter or or, or wherever else. so there are some of those structural issues that you know that cause people to join unions for uh, as a safety net that maybe not not might be there so then the question is what why do you join a union like what is it that a union does for you in those in in that type of situation those type of companies 
Well, I think I think in those high tech companies, uh, the, the reality is the vast majority of people don't join unions for some of the reasons that you've outlined, Adrian. But there's another reason uh, why workers don't join unions. There's actually two. Um, and, and some of them, one of the reasons is something within our control. The other is without our control. Uh, Professor John Geary, who's a, a lecturer in UCD, did a lot of work on this employee voice, worker voice. And he surveyed workers across Ireland at various intervals. And he found two reasons why lots of people, particularly in the non-traditional union sector, don't join unions. One is that they haven't been asked. Mm. Shame, shame on us. You know, we have a responsibility in addressing that. But the more crucial reason was many workers said, I would join a union if my employer was A, neutral, or B, not hostile to the idea. Ah, now that's an interesting point. I mean, yeah. and what are the telltale signs that a, an employer, for example, might be hostile? I, I mean, I, I read your, your your own piece in the, in the Sunday Indo yesterday, and you made the point that, for example, Apple don't mm. have an anti-union policy per se. But the reality is this. A lot of those employers don't have an anti-union policy. They'll say, of course, our staff can join a union, mm. but they don't say, and by the way, if they do, we'll talk to that union. You know, now, And that's be- something you alluded to, I think, earlier in this podcast. So you might yeah. just explain that because in the States, for example, the part of the context of, um, of those Google workers joining the union, I think it was the CWA or CWU over there, was that in the U.S., by and large, there is a basic fundamental obligation on employers to recognize a union when organized. And for it's, it's kind of weird to think of because we think our, of ourselves as being maybe a little bit more left of center in Ireland than the US. We don't have that here, right? We don't. Um, most of Western Europe has it. Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK has it. Even the States has it. Uh, you go through a process in the States, the National Labor uh, Relations Board, where if you have the majority of workers organized, you can be certified and the employer must recognize mm. you. Now, it's a very sophisticated approach, and it means the employers who are union hostile are every bit as sophisticated in combating that. And union density in America and collective bargaining coverage, the number of workers covered by collective agreements is very low. There's a glimmer of hope. Uh, Joe Biden has announced a new incoming Labor Secretary, a former trade union leader, the mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh, who came out with a tweet yesterday saying, you know, unions, collective bargaining and workers are the backbone of our economy. And I, I was saying to myself, wouldn't it be great if we had a minister in Ireland, north or south, who would say such a thing? We don't have that. It's not that a bit weird, because I, one of the things that has occurred to me, I mean, Ireland is not a right wing country. I mean, we were generally speaking somewhere around the centre, depending on the year that we're in, you can argue where we are in the political spectrum. Yeah. But we've had governments with parties on different sides of the spectrum. We've had left, certainly left of centre parties in there. How has it come to a scenario over 20, 30 years where... The, where, yeah. you know, where this hasn't has been progressed. Well, we've, we've never had a left-led government. We, we've we've always mm. had we've never had a social democratic party as the lead party. We've always had Christian democratic centre-right conservative. Well, sometimes Fianna Fáil would would try to argue, depending on the week well, it's in, I, whatever I, week I think it is. In, in opposition, they say they're social democrats. Yeah. When they're in government, it's somewhat different. But anyway, that's another matter. In Ireland, we have a voluntarist model, and as I said earlier on we're looking at this and saying, well, who, who has it been voluntary for? Because if workers come together and organize themselves, there are two ways in which we can achieve uh, recognition. One is through the power of persuasion, persuading the employer that it's in their interest to do this and that the workers are serious about it. And if that doesn't work, we have to use the persuasion of power. And unfortunately, that means a strike. Now, you take a group of workers who haven't been in a union 
they have a collective grievance. They come together, you organize them, you spend a year building up. The last thing they want is to have a strike with their employer, particularly if they are in a, a you know vulnerable or precarious situation. And you're asking those workers to, to sacrifice potentially a lot there. So in the 21st century, we have this archaic, outdated model of industrial relations where really, um, apart from the public service, in the private sector, you will only win recognition if the employer agrees to cede it. You can go to the Labour Court. The Labour Court will give you a piece of paper that says the employer should recognise the union. The employer can rip it up like confetti at a wedding. It, mean, mm. it means nothing. It's not binding. So our, we need to look at the European model, which is more mandatory. Um, okay, so, so that's something we could do in legislative and policy perspective. In reality yeah. today, let's say, you mentioned, for example, um, the Financial Services Union. And I, I wasn't aware of this until, because we were talking before uh, yeah. we were setting up this podcast, and you made me aware of this. Um, and they have uh, an example. They've gone after the gaming sector, video games, and they've set up a branch called Game Workers Unite. And yeah. I, I don't know how many. I spoke to the organizer, actually, Um Previously, and uh, I, I'm not. She wouldn't say exactly how many members they have. The sector is maybe between two and three thousand people. And what he was kind of he, he identified some of the issues that they were representing their members on. But the impression I got was that the point to having a union representative was as much about advice and legal advice and things like that, as it was to have somebody by your side talking to your boss. I mean, is that where we're at with, say, tech company representation? That it's it's effectively, I mean, I, I'm loath to use the example of the A, but almost like a, a professional services organization? Yeah. That, that's probably where we're at this stage. I mean, it's very embryonic. It's very early doors. And, you know, the trade union movement needs to change and modernize, and we need to reflect the people that we want to organize and represent. We need to, to, to be like them, look like them, and to represent them properly. So there's, you know, there's a, a process of change that has to happen from within. But, you know, if you look at the European model, and there are a range of models, and I'm, I'm talking about countries that have center-right governments like the Netherlands, like Austria, you know, I could talk about Scandinavia, of course, but even just middle-of-the-road wealthy European countries, they have situations where there are sectoral bargaining so in a given industry, unions and employers would negotiate minimums in that industry. You don't have to win recognition in a particular company or firm, whether it's Google or Facebook or, mm. or, or certain gaming companies, but you can you can represent your members by negotiating tripartite with the state uh, and the employers through their federations and their organizations. And let's remember, all of the employers are organized. We see very clearly in the pandemic how well organized they are when it comes to seeking assistance from the government. But yet some of those employers deny organization of, of their workers. So there are many different models and many different ways in which it can be done. But we are an outlier in Ireland. We are there with Hungary, you know, Viktor Orban's regime. We're, we're, we're bottom of the class when it comes to collective bargaining, there is no legal right in Ireland today in the 21st century for workers to achieve collective bargaining. Mm. We have we have to either ask for it or we have to either strike for it if we can't persuade employers. And that's mm. that's really not fit for purpose if we're trying to grow an economy, have an economy that's inclusive, participative, and that 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 works for everybody. Yeah, and, I mean, um, I, I can think of a few issues where... Um, we had a, a Labour senator on, Mary Sherlock, a few weeks yeah. back, and one of her issues was they were advancing a bill, and I think the government are doing something on this as well, about this idea of a right Should to be. switch off. 
um, oh, yeah. Yeah. A, a right to switch off in the evening. Now, I have my own doubts about how absolutely practical pragmatic it is to legislate for that but it's interesting that uh, that that's on the agenda and there are issues like that that maybe could crop up but you mentioned you referred to the you know looking like them appealing to uh, workers um and sometimes when you raise this topic um with people in the tech industry sometimes you get an acerbic response to the idea of unions they're old-fashioned they're interested in their own power they're they're only interested in the public sector you, you, i mean th- you know that impression is there yeah they're, they're, but i mean the truth is somewhat different uh these things aren't black and white there's a lot of gray in there i mean we represent eight hundred thousand workers on the island of ireland there are more private sector workers organized in unions affiliated to the ictu than public sector workers um you know, of course, when we are involved in, say, high-profile transport disputes and things like that, unions get a lot of attention. We don't get the same attention uh, and spotlight when it comes to major restructurings and negotiations. I mean, I spent the two or three years after the financial crash essentially involved in negotiations where we were having to concede things to keep firms alive. And the difference in being in a union or not in a union if it was a non-union firm, the employer basically said, these are the 10 things we're taking. If it was an organized firm, we negotiated change on maybe five or six issues, uh, but we kind of took the view that we would lend those conditions to the employer and get them back when times were better. So workers had a say, but we live in the real world. I mean, the firm has to be successful. The sector has to be successful for workers to be successful. And, you know, there is no media headlines in you know, Union X involved in a negotiation in the multinational in Waterford that saved the plant from demise, uh, where workers had to make major sacrifices. We don't, we don't hear about that because it's not newsworthy, but we'll hear about Lewis strikes and Dublin bus strikes and, and things like that. So, you know, we have to take the rough with the smooth, mm. but we have, to, we have to constantly evolve. We have to look at the models of employment and we have to look at how employers organize themselves and we have to match that and mirror that. Um, and we have to compete. Um, we have to compete um, for using employers' language market share with those workers that aren't in unions and maybe have an image of what unions are. Um, and we have to constantly evolve and, and, and change with the times too. That's a, it's an ongoing process of renewal. Mm. But I really, really think there are huge opportunities out there for trade unions. This pandemic, every crisis creates an opportunity. We have to seize it. The the debate about the future of work, making work pay, not just financially, but, you know, emotionally, um, psychologically, you know, when it comes to people's mental health, work-life balance, all of those important soft issues, I think are core trade union issues as well. And we need to make them. Yeah, it's the going to be interesting to see just the core concept of how a, a union uh, advances, because I'm no, I'm no scholar, historical scholar, scholar of um, the origins of unions and, and in Ireland we've our own history with that as well but it uh, one thing I have written about quite a bit is the nature of work and how the nature of work is changing and in a country like Ireland where productivity is has changed and the you know the, the nature of the type of stuff that we do has changed and it's less about um, factory work it's less about repetitive, um, task. There is still a lot of that, but yeah. it's we're just heading into different types of work. And it's going to be interesting to me to see how the issues are represented there. Like in Google, for example, in the States, 
the if you as was reported in the media with interviews with some of the people who organized it was as much or more about actual ethical issues that the company yeah. was engaged with such as providing services to such and such an arms company or or dealing with such and such a political um, entity as it was about representing them on pain conditions which again are generally uh, very very good um has that has anything like that ever to your knowledge cropped up in an Irish union situation where it's more about an ethical practice of a company rather than the actual um, core uh, financial or, or working interests of, yeah, of the people I mean, involved? Issues have certainly arisen where groups of workers have been concerned that the company they're employed by may have contracts or relationships with other companies when it comes to ethical issues, when it comes to you know, world trade or when it comes to the third world or things like that or armaments or, you know, um, the whole the whole fair work concept, fair trade concept. Yeah, those things do arise. I'm not aware of workers in Ireland saying, I want to organize myself in a union because of that. Mm. Um, but I'm certainly aware of companies, companies I've been involved in myself, um, where those issues have come up in the bargaining agenda. Um, and they're not self-interest issues. They're, they're wider than that. And they've always been there. But again, they don't get the the headspace. And I do believe that suite of issues, that kind of menu as to why people organize themselves is deepening and widening. You mentioned productivity, Adrian. I mean, even the World Bank and the OECD say things like collective bargaining is a positive tool to improve productivity. Well, I mean, the, the, Ger the Germans have proved this. I mean, they have proven this. The, Scandinavian I mean, the, the, countries. The, yeah. the German car uh, industry the most important manufacturing industry in Europe, arguably, you might say pharmaceuticals, but probably the car manufacturer in Germany. And the yeah. reason, the way they've done it so uh, successfully uh, without many hiccups, well, first of all, they're German. <laughs> Germans tend to, to, to be just quite efficient at, at making things, but but also it's because they've bought into this idea of, no, no, we're going to set out an agreement, we're all going to stick to it, and we're just going to make the cars. And that's how they do it. Um, I mean, I remember when, when I was a, 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 in college, I didn't go, but it was common for people yes. to go to Bavaria to in the summer yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and work in Volkswagen. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, but that that's the way they've done that um, uh, over there. So, so I do take your point on productivity. On the other hand, those jobs that they were going over to and the car plants that are still under those union agreements, they do still come a little bit closer to what would be regarded as legacy industrial activity in terms of you go in, you have a set of tasks. It, I mean, you, it might they're very important tasks, quality mm -hmm. control, um, there might be uh, you know bits of engineering involved in there. But essentially, like for example, it's a dynamic um, uh, factory assembly line, um, yep. for example. It's not quite the same. Um, what I'm getting at here is how a union can represent you in this situation. It's not quite the same as say yeah. being a you know a sales manager. You know? Yes, no, I, I get that. I mean, it's it's still manufacturing, which would have been our base. I mean, if you, if you think about it, like I I spent a lot of my working time in in, in Northern Ireland, um, and when I look at the profile of our membership there, it 30 years ago it was male, uh, manufacturing, uh, you know, middle aged but well paid. Now it's female and services. Um, you know, it, it's completely changed. But again, I don't think that co-determination, co co-design, collaborative working is exclusively around manufacturing. I mean, some of the unions that are very successful uh, in Europe, particularly in Scandinavia, are, are white collar private sector unions, you know, that are, you know, that are working in industries that are very agile and nimble. And again, it's not just all about well, having the negotiation at firm level, it's having it at, at sectoral level. And actually, when you look at economies and states and countries that do really well 
like Austria, you know, like Sweden, like Germany, like the Netherlands, you have bargaining at local level, you have bargaining at sectoral level, and you also have some level of bargaining at national level. They're not the social partnership process where we negotiated centralized pay increases um, from 87 to, to 2008 in the Republic of Ireland. I'm not talking about that, but bargaining on, say, issues around, say, you know, national legislation on sick pay, on pensions, that type of thing. So you find countries where you have that three levels of bargaining, they're very productive. There's greater equality, work pays much better. Countries that have one level, uh, like the UK, Ireland, it's a lot more distorted. Um, mm. and we don't do as we don't do as well. So, you know, it's it's obviously in the interest of workers. I passionately believe that the right to collective bargaining is a, is a, it's a human and civil right. Um, but it also makes sense and is and, and it is good for, for for business and for the economy. And you know, we still have a political class that kind of goes, oh, we don't want to frighten off, uh, you know, the Americans. Well, you know, uh, look at Joe Biden and and you know and 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 watch um, watch him over the next four years. He's going to be talking about making work pay for Americans, supporting trade unions, supporting collective bargaining. You know, look at the Scandinavian countries that have centre-right governments in, in, in power and some of them in recent times, where you have trade union density, a portion of people in unions, about 70%, and coverage about 90%. Mm. In Ireland, it's 30% and 40% respectively. Now, we've, we've done well to hold what we have in a climate where we have no right to organise, we have no right to collective bargaining. We've had an economic crash, now we have a global pandemic, and we're still here. Um, and the government do see the value of centralised pay bargaining in the, in the public sector. In the private sector, we, we don't want to go back to that, but we think sectoral bargaining, where you bring industries together, is a very good way to go, and it can be dynamic, uh, and it can help both uh, business and, uh, and workers. Just before we wrap up... W- I mean, we're talking about this slightly in the abstract and theoretical. I mean, I haven't actually asked you about any figures or, but could you give me any kind of a rough um, ballpark about, you know, how many members you have from uh, tech companies? To be honest, I I couldn't, I wouldn't know because they would be, we are the federation. We've about 34 members. So our members are sit to Or even on an aggregate and industrial level. Uh, No, you don't know. I would say it's very small. I mean, I know mm. I used to work with SIP2. I know that we had legacy membership and a significant membership in, in Apple and Cork, mm. going, going back to when Apple came there, HP, IBM, again, and people who would have been contracted or paid into those organizations. Um, I know the financial services union are making inroads in gaming. I can understand why they're not going to talk about numbers because when you're trying to build something uh, gradually, you want to keep that close to your chest. But I will say this, like, Given the conditions that we have in Ireland, we're, we're currently campaigning for a, an EU directive that's been published by Ursula von der Leyen, hardly a left-wing radical, you know, she's a Christian Democrat from Germany, on promoting collective bargaining and minimum wages across Europe. Um, and we want that implemented in Ireland because it will it will mean European law supplants Irish law. And it, it, in it, it says that every member state should put in measures to get collective bargaining coverage, the number of workers covered by collective agreements, up to 70%. Now, that would be a great initiative in Ireland uh, if we could do that. Mm. Um, and we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But the legislative framework conditions a lot of this. Uh, obviously, so do the actors that are part of it, workers, unions, employers. We need to try and make sure that we're fit for purpose, that those workers, when they 
want to organize that 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 they see us as a vehicle that makes sense for them that is speaking their language and that sounds and that sounds great i'm i'm just wondering whether it, in the next 1 2 3 5 7 years yeah. we're going to see effectively any uh workers in google organizing yeah. and if we do whether that will be because of anything that any of your members are are actually trying out i i think it, there are three things that will need to happen for that to ultimately to happen. That legislative framework is going to need to change. We are going to need to appeal to those workers in a way that perhaps in the past we haven't to the same extent. And the attitude of the employers needs to change. I go back to Professor uh, John Geary, where, where that crucial question was, lots of workers said, I would join a union if my employer didn't think it was, if my employer wasn't against it, if my employer wasn't hostile. So there's a lot of conditioning that needs to happen there. And I think that European legislation, that directive, if it comes soon in the next two years, can help that. We're campaigning with our own government um, and we will continue, irrespective of the colour or the political hue of that government to do so. Uh, we'll reach out to employers, IBEC, all the other bodies that we engage with to talk about this. I mean, company, or governments and states that do well have good, meaningful social dialogue. We yeah, bring and, social and, 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 we, and we made and, that point. Know. So points one and three, the government here, yes. legislative program uh, directive. Yeah. On point two that you mentioned, we have to go and get more. Uh, yeah. Like, what what will you do? Well, I, I think we, what, what we are doing is we're looking at broadening out the, the, the suite of venue and the offering. I mean, I think traditionally the offering has been paying conditions of employment. I think the offering has to be much, much wider. And that's what people are telling us. I mean, the, I mean there's the nothing to take to stop, for example, uh, SIP2 or any other union from actually taking out um, Google ads or Facebook ads roughly targeted at areas in the uh, catchment area uh, locations where they, they work. And, and no, I'm literally saying, did you know that we have a lot to offer you if you work for one of these companies? Like that is the way that, you know, that strikes me as being the way to get people in those companies to pay attention. I don't think ads alone are going to do it. I think kind of you've got, you've got to model the way, and there have to be examples that people can see that they can relate to. Uh, you know, I, I, to be honest, Adrian, I think if it was as simple as us putting ads in the paper, we, we would have done it years well, ago. Well, <laughs> my <laughs> colleagues will kill me. I'm not sure it would be the paper. I mean, well, but but our, <laughs> but but it, I my point. My point is, I mean, yes, let's make ourselves more appealing. Fine. Okay. Wh wh where's the plan? Where? What's point what? one, two, three, four? Yeah. Yeah. What then? Well, I think the suite of offering has to be much broader than paying conditions of employment. And particularly in those companies, it needs to be about culture because we do hear culture is an issue. I know myself from dealing with some multinational companies in the past, the culture in San Diego would be the same in Dunleary. Now, you know, that doesn't always work. And I'm talking to the, to the, to the, to the most minute point and a lot of workers find that a little bit hostile and a little bit unnerving okay well so the, let, cult let's the culture has to be more flexible okay, uh, you know? so, so let's let's just take that um uh, we don't have much time left but let's let's take that point culture mm. so somebody is feeling uneasy that the culture is too much like san diego rather than uh, dunleary where what does a union do in that circumstance where do they come in there okay well i, I was going to say i mean it's much wider than that it's about it's about having some feeling of control and input over your work, your career, co-determination, co-design at work. Uh, and I think we can do a, a lot about that when it comes to collective bargaining and negotiating agreements that provide that level of, of flexibility, because flexibility can't just be one-sided. 
I mean, we're but on the interested. culture point, for example, because usually yeah. complaints about culture are to do with um, things like uh, bias or discrimination or yeah. racism or those kind of uh, things. But if we're talking about culture, about you know, for example, you're you're, you're yes, I'm taking really superficial things now, but things like spellings or the way that things are or holidays or. I- I wouldn't even see it like that. I think you're taking a very narrow concept of culture. When, when I talk about the, the, the work culture environment, it's it's nearly akin to the way we talked about productivity in the past. You know, it's about making sure that workers, whoever they are, feel that they are both both financially but, but emotionally uh, valued at work. Um, and I think we can play a role in addressing that culture through collective bargaining, through collective agreements that actually aren't about money, aren't about pay, aren't about pensions, but are about the culture, the attitude, the relationships within a given firm, uh, within a given plant or, or organization. And we, we can be part of that process. And indeed, I know personally, we, we have been, and I can count many examples where we've been involved in transforming the culture. Um, and it's not always done just by unions and employers themselves. It's done by unions and employers with third parties coming into the system uh, mm. when it comes to that, be they from the Of course, companies the companies look sector. at that as red tape. They regard that as being just well, bureaucracy. Some do, and, some do and some don't. I mean, I've, I've had a number of examples of, of big multinational firms where maybe we've had an industrial dispute and we've realized that relationships were difficult and that we needed to rebuild. And we brought in an outside third party that both union and employer had mm. faith and trust in, that transformed how people work, transformed the relationships, transformed the roles and what we expected of one another when mm. it came to bargaining, and, and, and added to the modernization and the ethos of the workplace and improved the productivity mm. as well. So th- these, are, these are intangible, soft issues, but I think they're going to become more and more to the fore. And I think it's really important that we're part of that process and that we see that as a, a very central part of our narrative and mm. our offering. Um, and I think it's a potentially a very, very exciting time uh, in the world of work at all various levels. We need to work, make work pay both financially, but uh, socially and, and emotionally. Um, and those two things are just as important as the financials. OK, well, on that upbeat note, uh, Owen Reedy, uh, Assistant General Secretary of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, thanks a million for joining us today to talk about this issue. There's probably a lot more we could have gone into uh, on that, but that's all we have time for uh, this week. So for me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, I'll talk to you same time next week. Bye bye. 